Welcome to Intuitive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten Ackerman, the Intuitive RD. I'm a non-diet registered dietitian and intuitive eating coach. My mission is to help women recover from diet culture and heal their relationship to food and body. Follow along as I speak with leading professionals in the field and explore concepts of intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. Hey guys, welcome to episode 33 of Intuitive Bites. For the episode today, I'm chatting with Virginia Soulsmith, who is the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. So lots of interesting topics rolled up into this book. I'm really excited to share some of those topics with you um, in my conversation with Virginia, but um, there's so, so much. So I definitely encourage you guys to pick up that book if it sounds interesting to you. Um, Some of the things we talked about were like orthorexia in our culture and how it's running rampant. Uh, We also talked a lot about how um, orthorexic tendencies are like show up a lot in um, nutrition students or people who are seeking, seeking out dietetics or whatever. Um, certainly not to say that everyone that seeks that out is in that place, but, um, yeah, anyway, you'll, you'll hear more about that in the episode. And we also talk about, um, some, like a little bit about bariatric surgery and bariatric patients and their experience. And, um, it was a really good conversation to have with Virginia because I feel like she has a different perspective on it. Um, and we were able to kind of hash that out together um, and just talk about like the support that's needed for bariatric surgery patients after surgery and how sometimes maybe they can feel isolated from um, the intuitive eating community um, or something like that. So we really need to welcome them back and, and allow them to have this healing space as well. So uh, yeah, so lots of good stuff wrapped up in this episode. Uh, before we dive into it, if you have been listening to this podcast and you're liking the episodes, it would mean so, so much to me. I'm not just saying that. It honestly would mean a lot to me <laughs> um, if you go to iTunes and leave a rating or review. So you can just click on the like the stars and leave the rating, or you can take a second to write a, a little bit of a comment and, um, in a review. But it definitely makes a difference. And I just like, you know, seeing what you guys are thinking of the podcast and um, what I could be doing better also. So all of that is good, good stuff, in my opinion. Um, Also, another thing to mention, um, I currently have a sale going on uh, for my online intuitive eating courses. So I have an introduction to intuitive eating course, which is very foundational level. And then I also have um, a course that's intuitive eating after weight loss surgery. So if you're in that boat or you know someone that's in that boat, I definitely recommend that course. You can find the courses if you go to my Instagram. So my handle is at the intuitive underscore RD. And if you go to my profile, you'll see um, the link in the bio section. And if you open that, you'll see the courses and a bunch of other links as well. So you can easily find my courses there if you're interested. Um, they're on about 20% um, discount through whatever Sunday <laughs> is after I'm releasing this. I think it's, um, no, I totally don't even know the date. Uh, the 14th. <laughs> yeah, so it's they're on sale through the uh, Sunday the 14th. So check that out. And one last thing, I have reordered um, 
some diet culture is a liar stickers. So I'm going to have more of those in stock pretty soon. So if you're interested in having one of those, keep your eye out on my Instagram stories or posts or wherever I end up announcing that. Um, I'll definitely have them in pretty soon and I'm going to be putting them on sale again. So look out for that. Um, I'm going to stop talking now and we're going to go ahead and listen to my conversation with Virginia. All right, Virginia, I'm so excited that you're here. I would love for you to just take a moment to introduce yourself and your work and also give us an idea of, you know, what got you, uh, what inspired you to write your book, The Eating Instinct? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I'm the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. I'm also a a journalist. I'm a contributing editor at Parents Magazine, and I co-host my own podcast, The Comfort Food Podcast. So for a long, long time, I've been writing about women and our bodies and food, and then also as I became a mom, writing more about parenting and food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these have been long-time interests in mind. But, you know, to be honest with you, for the first 10 years of my career as a journalist, I was a little bit on the wrong side of things. I was writing about nutrition for women's magazines, which, you know, anyone who's picked up a women's magazine knows I was writing diet articles, you know, bikini bodies, makeovers, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was always conflicted about it. I didn't love that we were pushing this message of make your body smaller or follow these rules and, you know, you can change your relationship with food. But at the same time, I wasn't really sure what else there was. Like I knew this wasn't working for people, but I kept thinking, well, if I just find the right diet, you know, there's got to be this sort of unicorn of a plan out there (laughs) where, you know, it'll keep you effortlessly thin, but you won't have to feel deprived and hungry and cut out lots of foods or obsess over it. And, you know, I kept thinking like another diet would be the answer to that. And then, so all of this was kind of in the early 2000s when diet culture was still kind of capital D diet culture with, you know, Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, like those kinds of very metric oriented plans. Mm -hmm. And then around the mid 2000s is when diet culture started to morph more into wellness culture. Mm -hmm. And as a journalist, I was following this, I was writing about the rise of the alternative food movement, and our increasing interest in things like eating organic, which became Mm -hmm. eating clean, shopping at farmers markets, which became all about whole foods and anti-processed foods. And this really felt like the answer. You know, this felt like, oh, okay, you're not counting calories anymore. You're, you can eat whatever you want as long as it's, you know, a plant and you knew the farmer that grew it. But of course, like that's a whole other set of really strict rules to live by. Mm-hmm. And it's grounded in this, you know, in many ways it's grounded in a philosophy I still quite agree with, but it's, it can be taken to this extreme place as we're seeing yeah. now with where diet culture has gone. And yeah. so, you know, the turning point for me didn't come until... 2013, when my oldest daughter, Violet, was born, and she was born with a rare congenital heart condition, the upshot of which was she completely stopped eating at a month old and was dependent on a feeding tube for the first two years of her life. And that experience was so extreme and so dramatic. And, you know, I read about it in great detail in the book, but, you know, the upshot was I was kind of forced completely outside the paradigm of everything I thought I knew about our relationship to food. You know, I had this whole vision of myself as a mom, breastfeeding endlessly, making my own baby food, blah, blah, you know, this whole sort of rosy image and none of it, you know, none of it worked, none of it applied to our situation. Yeah. And that's really when I realized that, in order to have a better relationship with food, it's not about finding this expert or this plan who can tell you what you need. It's about 
reconnecting with these instincts that we're all born with. You know, Violet's instincts were disrupted very quickly due to medical trauma. And I think that's why I was really able to see it happen. But the truth is like a lot of us, our eating instincts, our sense of hunger and fullness, the sense that food should provide comfort, all of that falls apart for us over the years as diet culture kind of chips away at our trust in ourselves. So that's what led me to write the book and, you know, start exploring how that happens for people in a lot of different realms. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, it's it's powerful to read the words that you wrote about, you know, the story with your daughter and all of that. And it, for me, it was um, such a different perspective than I have been hearing as I've kind of been coming into this space with intuitive eating and health at every size. Um, and just like you're talking about the concepts of just like healing your relationship to food and, and the way you talk about it, like getting back in touch with your, your instinct around eating. Um, it was, again, it was just like a really, really different perspective. And I, I thought it was really interesting. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So uh, there's a few things that I kind of just like picked out from the book that I, I would love to just kind of present to you and hear you break down a little bit more for us. Sure. Uh, so one piece of that um, is this concept of um, orthorexia and the way that there, it was quoted in your book by Stephen Bratman was that orthorexia is, you know, an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Um, and one piece that you talked about in this section of the book was how some of these like clean eating or like orthorexic tendencies tend to like target these almost like benign health things that are like almost vague, like, oh, headaches or fatigue or, you know, problems with sleeping or whatever. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, you think something's terribly wrong with you and you can solve it if you just find the perfect clean way of eating. Um, but really it might just be something that, you know, it could be affected by various like variables in your life. Right. Um, so I'm just curious more about like what you found or what your, your thoughts on orthorexia are and like when it's become to, or when it's come to be more prevalent. Yeah. So orthorexia is really interesting because, um, you know, researchers aren't totally clear yet on whether it really is a standalone eating disorder or kind of a subset of anorexia. And I think there's a sort of academic debate happening around that. But to me, what it really is, is our food culture kind of taken to this, this zenith, this extreme point. And mm -hmm. I think you can really see it because, because the, what's dangerous about orthorexia is how normalized a lot of the behaviors are. You know, we hear all the time that we should be avoiding toxins in our food and, you know, eating whole foods and all these sort of things that are kind of a mainstay of an orthorexic's eating plan um, have become very socially acceptable. It's very normal to be hosting a dinner party now and know that you have to manage a gluten-free person, a dairy-free person, mm -hmm. a, you know, like you, it's like, it's considered like that that is very socially acceptable and normal. And, you know, there's two problems with this. Number one, it's, you know, of course there are people like people with celiac disease or what have you who really do need to avoid those foods. And so we're not taking them seriously enough. But then on the other hand, you know, we've got this idea that somehow if our body isn't functioning in this like pure optimal way that we need to, that something is wrong. And what immediately humans, we have it in our nature that we go to, okay, it must be our food. We can fix that. And what I think is really happening there is, you know, there's a lot about modern life that is hard. A lot, you know, if you have kids and you have a job and you're balancing a lot of stuff in your life, odds are you're tired kind of a lot of the time, right? Mm -hmm. Odds are you get headaches from time to time. <laughs> Maybe you don't poop as great as you want to be pooping. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong with our bodies 
just related to the business of living and having a full and busy life that aren't necessarily dysfunction. They aren't necessarily, you know, huge problems, but because we're holding ourselves to this wildly unsustainable and unrealistic standard of basically like that we should be like doing yoga on a beach at all times, (laughs) you know, we feel like, Oh, if we don't like sort of hop out of bed in the morning, like buzzing with energy that we're somehow failing. And we also really tie all of those more kind of abstract health benefits. We tie them to our weight. So we think that the only way to achieve that, like humming with energy, radiant personality, um, you know, never a headache or an ache in your body sort of existence is to be thin. When in fact, like, that really isn't at all related to it. You know, if you have a headache problem, like you may need medication, you may need to cut out caffeine, you may need more sleep. Like you probably don't need to lose weight. It's probably nothing to do with that. And it very well is nothing to do with what you're eating. But I think a lot of the problems that do cause those issues are a lot harder to unpick. You know, like if you're constantly experiencing like acid reflux because your job is really stressful, you know, or getting headaches because your job is really stressful. Like it's hard to say you're going to quit your job or you ended up in the wrong career or you ended up in a bad marriage or, you know, you're suffering from postpartum depression because actually as much as you wanted to be a parent, having small children around you night and day is like draining the life force out of you. (laughs) Like these are very real things, but they're very hard to solve. And it's very easy to think, on the surface, oh, well, you know, I, this way I don't have to deal with that big messy problem in my life, but let me focus on food. And unfortunately, we know that that always fails. Not only does it not generally solve the health problem, it often sets you down a rabbit hole of a whole new set of health concerns as your body's trying frantically to adapt to these new restrictions you've imposed on it. Yeah. And, you know, it's not as easy as you think it is to avoid a major food group or to live with a bunch of restrictions. It really limits your life. It limits how you can spend time with the people you love. So yes. that, in that way, it's totally undermining your goal of wellness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think there are some people that find that like, they aren't even able to stick to the restrictions for any, you know, length of time. And then there are the people that find they can, but they, what about all the the life that they're losing and all the, you know, the value that they're losing in their interactions with other people and, you know, canceling events because of, you know, whatever, (laughs) because they can't. Right. And we sort of praise the people who are able to exert that kind of willpower without questioning, like, gosh, what is it really saying that you're able to exert that kind of willpower? What are you giving up in order to do this? Like what compromises are you, you know, like we shouldn't romanticize the people who are able to follow these plans because that's usually, you know, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, it's a sign of things are out of balance for them. And this is where they're really focusing all their energies. And that's not some, you know, and we shouldn't, you know, for those of us who can't adhere to these restrictions for more than a couple of days, like that's normal. That, that makes sense. They're hard restrictions. They're not, they're not compatible with normal life. So we shouldn't be trying to do that, but we blame ourselves. I mean, this is the huge problem of diet culture is we outsource all the expertise. We think that someone else needs to tell us how to do all this, but then when the diet fails, we still blame ourselves. We don't outsource the guilt. (laughs) Yes. So, interesting I agree yeah so interesting Uh, and you know something you mentioned at the the beginning that you were talking about is that this orthorexia or this obsession with healthy eating is is so normalized that like people don't even realize that it's a problem and for me I just go back to thinking about you know being a, a dietetic student and being surrounded by people who again like not all of them were suffering 
from orthorexia or not all of them were like really super obsessed with healthy eating, but certainly some of them were. And you mentioned something in your book, um, a statistic basically about like, I think it was like, you know, there's double the risk for a dietetic student to suffer from an eating disorder or Mm -hmm. disordered eating compared to the rest of the student body. And I just thought that was interesting because Again, I don't think that I think that some dietitians will hear that and say, well, that's not me. Absolutely not. But for me, I definitely can relate to that with my own disordered eating. And I know there are other dietitians that are in this same space of intuitive eating and non-diet approach that also relate. So it's just really interesting to, to hear that, that it's not, you know, it's not just, it wasn't just me. <laughs> no, it's definitely not just you. I'm fascinated by that across the board with pretty much any specialty that focuses on food um, and also, you know, uh, folks who focus on treating eating disorders often have high rates of eating disorders themselves. And on one level, I think this makes sense. I mean, we we gravitate towards work that we're going to find personally fulfilling and having some personal connection to the work, you know, it makes sense that you would uh, find it fulfilling. But, you know, with the dietetic students, it is really concerning because dietetics programs don't include much training about eating disorders, um, you know, how to spot them. The focus is always very much on weight loss. And so if you have, if this is actually attracting a vulnerable population, a lot of them, what you're learning in school is totally reinforcing your eating disorder because these programs haven't figured out that they have to incorporate this other training. And that is, you know, that runs pretty counter to the way a lot of specialties, you know, if you're studying to be a psychotherapist, like it is expected that you are yourself in therapy and you are, you know, like, like you're working on your own stuff in order to put that aside to serve your patients. And yeah, that's not happening in dietetics right now. And I think that really needs to change because I think that's a, that's a big piece. And it's not something consumers have any understanding of when they consult with a dietitian or another, you know, sort of allied health professional in the food and eating worlds, like they don't realize that you're kind of taking a gamble on this person. There's no, you know, there's no screening for that. So you're putting a lot of stock in somebody who may be really struggling themselves and you wouldn't see that. So that's, that's a big concern I have. And I think it's a reason why in a lot of ways, you know, I hate to sound like I'm anti-doctor or anti-training because I'm not at all. I'm really pro science and education. But when it comes to food, I think, again, we've outsourced it. We've this idea that we need some sort of credible expert to guide us through it. When in fact, most of us really need to just rebuild trust in our own bodies. And that's where we need to start. And then you can always bring in an expert to help you fine tune something. But like, it has to start with knowing that, yes, you are the boss of your body and you know when you're hungry and when you're full and someone mapping out portion sizes for you (laughs) is not really serving you in that way if they're not willing to listen to what your body needs. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, just to kind of highlight, like I completely can um, agree that like in my dietetics training, I wasn't, you know, eating disorders were touched on a tiny bit. Like I think in your book, you said something like one or two, you know, mentions in a course. And that's, that's honestly true. Like there should be way more training on that when, especially considering the prevalence and and all of that. And even just considering even outside of eating disorders, the amount of disordered eating because of our culture that we're living in. Um, So that's definitely true. And I also can say like my, you know, disordered eating, it may have morphed because of being a dietetic student, but it didn't, it, it was not morphed in a good way. You know, it just changed. Right. And I, right. I found new ways of, oh, this is the healthiest way, or, oh, I should be tracking on this app and that will be a good thing for me, you know? So it wasn't, uh, wasn't supportive for me. Um, yeah. So that's, that's definitely, um, 
yeah, definitely true. Um, so the other thing that I'm really interested in talking to you about, um, shifting a little bit here, there was a, an article that you mentioned in your in the book, um, basically called Long-Term Weight Loss Maintenance in Obesity, Possible Insights for Anorexia Nervosa. Um, so I was talking to you before we started recording about how, just how horrifying this is, essentially that like we're thinking about people who are you know able to lose weight and keep it off um as being like having so much willpower and being able to like crack the code for weight loss but in reality like they have a lot of similarities to people with anorexia nervosa in terms of like their metabolic like adaptations and instead of saying like oh wow like maybe these people are also struggling with anorexia we're like oh wow they're really good at this let's like crack this code and like tell people how to, um, you know, spread to more people how they can do this. Yeah, this was really troubling. I mean, I was kind of loosely aware of this before researching the book because I have some people in my own life who struggle with eating disorders and it took them a really long time to be diagnosed because their weight was higher than what you classically think of as, you know, anorexia kind of like serious underweight situations. Yeah. And so I knew that this was a problem that these, you know, eating disorders don't get taken seriously at that level. But that article, which I'm blanking on which academic journal it was published in, but it was a very reputable one, you yeah. know, it's a scientific paper. And, um, you know, it was so troubling because I realized this is this is a huge flaw in how we're approaching weight and the quote war on obesity, which I very much put in quotes, um, yeah. because we really have decided in this country that weight loss is so essential to fighting this epidemic mm. that, you know, we need to achieve that by any means possible. And so now we really are, Deb Burgard is one of the experts I talked to in the book, so she put it, you know, we really are prescribing for people in big bodies what we would diagnose as an eating disorder in a thinner person. And that is completely flawed and completely discriminatory. And it's, you know, it's serving nobody because it's only reinforcing the thin ideal that is pushing people into these eating disorders. And it's not achieving better health for anyone in a bigger body to live on some crazy restrictive plan. And what it's really doing is saying, like, you don't deserve to eat like the rest of us. Like, you don't deserve the same freedom. There's something wrong with you. And so we need to <clears throat> put you on this draconian plan so that we can fix you. And that is, that is just wrong. I mean, that is, that is wrong. That is discrimination. We need to be calling it out as such. And instead, we're practicing it as medicine. So yeah. it's, you know, it's hugely problematic. And I think you know, what it really speaks to is the the weight stigma, the fat phobia that we all, you know, yeah. we really all internalize that we need to really reckon with in, amongst ourselves. Um, and I think the medical profession in particular, you know, studies have shown they have particularly high rates of weight stigma. Um, and again, it's because they're sort of focusing on these consequences of higher weight bodies that they see as like, you know, it's associated with heart disease, diabetes, all these health problems. But what they're missing is when you unpack the research, the weight is not a cause of those health problems. It's a correlating symptom. So we don't know what the underlying cause is because we're not looking for it. We're just focusing on this correlating symptom that, yes, lots of people in bigger bodies have these problems. Lots yeah. of people in bigger bodies do not have those problems. You know, we're not looking at what else do, the, do these populations have going on and how could we address those issues. Right. And then, you know, we're just reinforcing again that it's weight loss, weight loss, weight loss when that's yeah. not it's Correlation not does not equal causation. Exactly. Right? 
<laughs> exactly. And I think that's, that's so missing. And the reason that's missing is because we have this huge bias against bigger bodies that we assume that they are the flaw instead of looking at what is, you know, what's underneath it all that could be contributing to perhaps some bigger bodies in some cases, but more importantly to these issues. And I'm really concerned about this with kids because, you know, we hear all the time about, quote, rising childhood obesity and, you know, oh, type 2 diabetes is this epidemic in pediatric populations now. I looked up the numbers eating disorders are still like triple the rate of type 2 diabetes in pediatric populations. You know, there is just no question that the bigger epidemic for teenagers is disordered eating and eating disorders. And in fact, you know, having diabetes doesn't mean you can't also have an eating disorder. So, you know, so we're like completely focusing on the wrong problem there, which is not to say diabetes isn't a devastating disease. It is. But prescribing weight loss and disordered eating patterns is not the way to fight that. And it's also exacerbating this other enormous problem. Exactly. Right. When you, when you say it that way, it sounds absolutely ridiculous that we would be like only focusing on or like primarily focusing on childhood obesity. And like you're saying, the solution to that is actually causing more harm to a bigger problem. Right. Right. So the I mean, way that we're, you know, the way that we're trying to solve it. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, Oh, okay. So the the last topic that I'm really interested in talking to you about is um, about the concept of bariatric surgery. You have a a really big chapter in your book dedicated to um, following some people who have had bariatric surgery and, you know, people who have been listening to my podcast know I also have history working with patients um, in that um, in that space. I wanted to read a portion of something that you wrote because I think it's really interesting and then maybe we can chat about it a little bit more. Great. Um, so basically you were quoting Deb Burgard, who, had you, who, who you had spoke to, and um, something that she had written was essentially like the, the um, it, it came down to, you know, why would never experiencing hunger be a good thing? Um, to give a little background on that, you know, bariatric surgery, a big part of it is at least in the beginning stages of having the surgery, your hunger cues are really silenced just because of the, like, physical like outcomes of the surgery so um the kind of the concept behind the part of the concept behind the surgery is oh if we you know cut the stomach and and get rid of these hunger hormones then people will just eat less and then they'll be smaller and then they'll obviously be healthier so deb burgard had said you know but why would never experiencing hunger be a good thing um and then you went on to say you know we are born with the ability to experience hunger because eating ensures survival but i also know because i live in in the world that resenting and regretting our hunger has become part of the normal business of living, especially as a woman, especially right now. We apologize for taking a cupcake at the office party, whether we're truly remorseful or just expected to perform our penance. We skip breakfast yet feel annoyed when our stomach is rumbling for lunch at 10 a.m. We go to dinner with friends and order the salad or don't order the fries because we're trying to match our appetites up with everyone else seems to be doing. We joke that we'd never want to be anorexic, but, but gosh, we admire that willpower. And anyone who lives at a higher weight knows that how, that how he or she displays and responds to hunger will open them to judgment, curiosity, ridicule, stigma. Why would never experiencing hunger be a, a good thing? For many people, it would be living the dream. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot there. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, obviously I agree with Bergard. Like 
it's yeah. experiencing hunger is a good thing. And, you know, I know this personally because as we helped Violet through her pediatric feeding disorder, she wasn't experiencing hunger and it was heartbreaking. You know, every day it was heartbreaking because my baby wasn't hungry and I didn't know how to comfort her, or how to help her through that. So I know this is a bad thing, but at the same time, the way we talk about hunger now is that it's this thing that you need to control and banish and ignore and be disciplined about. And, you know, the, just the whole culture around fearing and resenting hunger is spun wildly out of control. And so I think a lot of people can relate to those examples I listed out. I think a lot of us have been at that office party, have made that, you know, frankly, very tasteless joke about anorexia, yeah. Um, yeah. you know. Like we, we put that out there because we think even if, even if we can feel, our, so some people really get to the point with this where they really disconnect from their hunger completely. They stop feeling it because they've sort of pushed it so far down yes. through all of this. But even if you, but I think what happens more, you know, is more common at the sort of subclinical level with this is that people feel their hunger and they're immediately alarmed and freaked out and they feel guilty. Like it's like we've, they've conditioned this huge response to it instead of saying like, oh, I'm hungry, you know, like, yes. you know, I'm hungry right now. Like I had breakfast at 5am <laughs> and now I'm ready for my morning snack. And uh -huh. once we wrap this up, I'm going to go eat it because that's yeah. how my body works. Like it's right. normal. And it's not a sort of disconcerting experience when you know that your body's going to do that every few hours and you can, you know, use that to guide you through your day. That's just like, it's normal. But I think, um, I think we've really come to fear it, you know, at all body weights. I think people really fear it. And then particularly folks in bigger bodies, you know, it's just this huge struggle because every time that, you know, a lot of fat people talk about the experience of eating in public, just feeling like hugely shaming because people are feeling like, you know, you failed every time you're eating lunch. And that's, yeah. that's horrible. It's a horrible way to live. It is. Yeah. And I just, I have vivid, vivid memories of, you know, tons and tons of clients saying to me, you know, I just you know, this is pre-surgery, they would be saying to me, you know, I just can't wait until I don't have that hunger because that will, like essentially paraphrasing, like that will solve all my problems. Like if I'm just right. hungry, then I'll be able to control my eating finally. Right. Um, and you know, with the surgery, obviously there are things that happen that, that the hunger does go away, but um, that concept that like, if I can just not be hungry, then things will be good. It's like, it's such a disconnection. I mean, it's, it's the biggest disconnection that there possibly could be yeah. in your body, you know? And to expect that to fix everything in your life. Again, this circles yeah. back to what we've already talked about that, you know, even if that does happen, even if we do erase your hunger and we lose weight, we know from studies on these patients and certainly the interviews I did with folks who'd done the surgery, it doesn't fix everything in their life. It, no. you know, controls this one piece of it, but the job they hate, the marriage that's in trouble, like all of those things are all still there. And, you know, and now you've also taken away what may have been a coping skill for them yes. using food as comfort and they have to find something to replace that. And that's, you know, so I think, you know, so I approach the whole concept of bariatric surgery a little differently than a lot of folks in health at every size, which is yeah. I really support people in their lived experience. And yeah. if people decide it's the right choice for them, I am here for them on that. I yeah. think I hate that our culture makes it feel mandatory to a lot of people. And I yeah. think we have a lot of work to do to change that. But I do think like if someone decides that this really is where they are and what they need to do, we need to provide them with support. And that means helping them understand that, okay, this may help resolve a certain health problem you're struggling with. If, you know, indeed weight is really a contributing factor, or this may help solve something about your life that isn't working, but it will yes. not fix everything. And they need comprehensive support. And I think one of the best things Health at Every Size could do is 
figure out how to really support these patients through that experience and teach them intuitive eating skills as they're working through this or ideally before they have the surgery, you know, because I think combined, you know, again, I I think we need way less bariatric surgery. I think to use very sparingly, but we can't abandon the people who decide it's right for them. That's not our call Mm. to make about anyone's body. You know, we have to figure out how to support them through that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I would very much say that I, like, I don't know. Uh, I guess it comes down to, you know, this con- the concept of body autonomy, and I'm never going to shame somebody for deciding to make that choice for them, and the surgery will change things for them. I mean, there's a lot of risks involved, and right. whatever, but it will change certain things for them, and if they, like you said, if they decide that's what's right for them, like, that's that's their decision to make, and I agree we need to be providing support, and I, I know from talking to people who have had the surgery and then also have dipped into the, this intuitive eating space, that they don't feel welcomed, you know, they mm-hmm. feel judged or they feel whatever. Like they've let down the team, you know, yeah. and that's not right because, right. you know, we don't all have to like, we don't, I don't know. I think it's really problematic to say somehow you owe your, your body to this larger movement. I mean, that's yeah. basically the same thing the war on obesity is doing. So, you know, like we have to respect that people might make different choices while still saying, wow, we have this much larger cultural fight to change the standards, to be more accepting of bigger bodies so that it doesn't feel like something they have to do just to fit into the world. You know, yes. that's a heartbreaking reason to do it. Um, and, right. and we can't, I mean, it really comes down, we can't blame the individual the same way right. we can't blame the individual for dieting or wanting to pursue weight loss. We can't, right. Yeah. So that's absolutely true. And I also think that, um, you know, having experience with bariatric surgery, like these post, these people post-surgery need to relearn how to connect to their bodies for better or worse. That's true. And intuitive eating can obviously be a really helpful tool with that. So I I agree. We need to open up the space a lot more for them. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. All right, Virginia. Well, I would love if you could share with everyone um, where they can find resources that you have and, and everything. Where can, where can they find you online? Absolutely. So, you know, your first stop is virginiasoulsmith.com. You'll find links to the book, The Eating Instinct, you know, the Amazon link, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound. It's at your local bookstore. Um, you can also find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith in both places. And then Comfort Food Podcast. There's links to that on my website as well, but it's on, you know, anywhere you get your podcast, um, any of the podcast players. And our show notes are at comfortfoodpodcast.com. So those awesome. are the places to find us. Thank you so much, Virginia. I'm going to link below to those few places so people people can easily find you. Oh, um, and I should also yeah. add, I do yeah. have a newsletter. This is oh. really, sorry, I've just added it. Um, <laughs> so if you're at my website, you can sign up for my newsletter and then you'll always get, you know, the latest articles I'm writing about this stuff. I send out a lot of resources that way and updates on the podcast. So that's a good thing to Awesome. Make sure you don't miss anything. <laughs> all right. Yeah, definitely. I'll link below for all of that. Um, thank you again so much. This is such a great conversation. I'm so excited we got to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right, guys, that is this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to link in the show notes with places you can find Virginia and also just going to um, leave the name of her book there. So if you're interested, you can check that out as well. Um, Check out my online courses if you're interested in taking them. Again, it's Introduction to Intuitive Eating and Intuitive Eating After Weight Loss Surgery. So you can find them on my Instagram, like I said, in the links on my bio. Or you can always just go to my website as well. It's theintuitive-rd.com. Okay, so 
check it out and I will talk to you guys soon. Thank you.